Well, it's always awkward when you kind of get asked to come and preach in a new church. You don't know what to wear or kind of, you know, what Bible version to read from. I'm from Australia originally, and um, you always knew, you always know in Australia who's preaching because they're wearing a shirt because it's a little bit more casual at times over there. And I do have shoes on this morning, which doesn't always happen. Uh, but this morning I'm going to have a look at the story of Jacob. I'm going to be jumping in halfway through the story. Uh, so if you don't know the story well, I'll, I'll, I will backtrack a little bit. Uh, but let's start at verse 1 in, in uh, chapter 28. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Badam Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Padam Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Benamaran to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Benamaran. Esau then realised how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the daughter of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he, he already had. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone and he, placed under his, he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat, and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of that, that you get, all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now, a little bit about Jacob uh, and what, what is going on in this story. Uh, let, let's fill, fill it, I'll fill you in a little bit. Jacob 
some of us will know, he's a twin. His brother Esau uh, is born first. And as Esau is coming out of the womb, uh, Jacob is holding onto his brother's ankle and kind of coming out with him. And Jacob is given the name Jacob as a, as a kind of one who trips up or kind of the idea is that he's a cheater. He cheats people. He's trying to, he's trying to get the birthright. And so he's coming out, holding onto his brother's ankle. And so straight away, we're kind of asking the question, who is this guy? What's he going to be like? And if we had, had to start right back at the beginning of Genesis, we would see that what, what God is doing, he's trying to deal with sin in the world. And, how is, and we're trying to ask a question, how is God going to remove sin? And we see that God blesses one family, Abraham's family. God calls this man Abraham out. And through this family, we know that God is going to bless the world. And Abraham is given three promises. It's a threefold promise. He said, you, you're going to have lots of offspring. I'm going to give you this land. And the whole world is going to be blessed through you. So expect this one family to be the family that's going to bless everything in the world. And that promise is then passed down onto Isaac, uh, Jacob's father. And now with these twins, we're asking the question, who is going to receive this promise? Who is going to be the one that, that, that is going to get, get this promise? Is it going to be Esau, who's the, he comes, when he comes out he's really hairy, so he's, he's a hairy hunter? Or is it going to be the one that they call the cheater? You know, the one who, who, who trips people up. But then a few strange things happen. We're expecting it to be Esau because he's the oldest. But Esau sells his birthright to his twin brother because at one point Esau is so hungry from hunting that, that he's going to die. And so he sells his, his birthright to his brother. You know, what a loving brother. I'll give you some food if you sell me your birthright. Sure. Then later on, uh, at his mother's advice, Jacob tricks his dad into giving him the blessing as well that was reserved for his, for his brother. And we, could, and we could be like, well, you know, it's only words. It doesn't really matter. You know, kind of God will, will choose who he wants to choose in, in, in terms of the, the, uh, the blessing being passed down. And that's right. God doesn't necessarily need, need people to, to fulfill his plans. But even earlier on, back in chapter 25, we're given a hint or we, we're told who these blessings are going to pass to. Rebecca is given is told is told a small prophecy. She said it says in chapter twenty five, verse twenty three, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. She knows who the chosen one is. She knows who the blessings are going to pass through. But the funny thing is that she thinks that she needs to help God along the way, fulfilling his plans. We see that happen the whole way through Genesis. Abraham tries to do it. Sarah, his wife, tries to do it the whole way. They think God needs help in fulfilling the plans. And if we have a look back, just a couple of verses, chapter 27, verse 41, we see that Jacob, he's just tricked his brother, tricked his dad, sorry, uh, to get his blessing, and his brother Esau hates him for it. It says this in verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her youngest son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is consoling himself 
with the thought of killing you. Esau is pretty angry. Verse 44, uh, the mum says to Jacob, flee because of Jacob's, oh, Esau's fury. And there's 45, she says it again, flee because of his anger. He's not happy. But he restrains himself because of his dad. He says, I'm going to wait until my dad dies and then, then I'm going to kill my brother. It's a kind of a good relationship going on there. He knows his dad's going to die soon and so, so he's waiting. He's, he's kind of just biding his time. And I love it in verse 45, Rebecca says, you know, run away so that, you know, and, and spend some time away so that your brother might forget what you have done. But it was Rebecca's idea in the first place. She's just kind of like, I'm washing my hands of this son. You know, you just go away for a little while and, um, you know, kind of when you, when you come back, maybe when I'm dead, you know, th- th- then you can deal with it. But Rebecca is the one who keeps thinking that, I, that she needs to help God along with her plans in helping Jacob get the blessing. Verse 26, uh, she says, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, the Hittite women uh, like these, my life will not be worth women, not be worth living. She hatches a plan to, to help Jacob flee from the family. The Hittite women that Rebecca is talking about are Esau's wives. Esau just has taken wives from around them, not from within the family. Uh, and Rebecca is kind of not super happy about it. And she plants this seed in Isaac's mind. And Isaac calls Jacob in and blesses him and sends him away. And that's at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 28. Jacob is a bit of a mummy's boy and Esau is kind of wants his dad's approval all the time. That's why he goes and marries uh, the granddaughter of Abraham. But we need to notice the blessing that Isaac gives Jacob. In chapter 28, in verses 3 and 4, says this, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. He gives the same blessing that is given to Adam and Eve in the beginning to be fruitful and to increase. And then he gives the same blessing that is given to Abraham. You know, the... The, the same thing, the, the, um, the people, the land and the blessing. The most unlikable person in the world since Cain has just been given the, all of the blessings and all of the promises that God can offer. You know, how many movies or books uh, you've ever read or, or seen that you thought, you know, I really want the bad guy to win. You know, if we ever think that, you know, then usually the bad guy has some redeeming features. We all love a bit of Darth Vader, I know that, but he kind of redeems himself at the end, doesn't he? You know, even in Star Wars, people, sorry, even, even in Lord of the Rings, you know, Sauron you know, the, is the, just seen as the most evil, greedy person. No one wants that, that kind of character to win. If you follow cricket, you know, the whole debacle around the Australian cricket team, bring shame on my name. Uh, everyone loves it because the bad guys have lost. You know, the bad guys have been brought low. You know, everyone in the cricketing world is happy because you know, they've been found out. But Jacob is being presented as this evil, greedy, conniving villain who's just defrauded his brother, who's just lied to his father. He has to run away from his family 
Otherwise, he's going to be killed. The whole family, though, is also being presented as a pretty awful bunch of people. A dad who's a bit, you know, doesn't really know what's going on. You know, his brothers just, his sons just keep on fighting and he doesn't really know what's, what's happening. A mum who's pretty manipulative. A brother who's a hairy brute. You know, and, the, and then the, the, the twin who just tries to cheat everyone out of everything. It sounds like a storyline from Shortland Street. Not, not that I'd ever watch anything like that. But, you know, they're not being presented as the most favourable kind of family that you would want to ever live in. But Jacob leaves home, and in verse 10, it says that he heads off to Haran. Before, he, it said that he was going to Badam Aram. Haran is probably the same place, just with a different name. But the point is that he is going back to the very place that Abraham, his grandfather, was brought out from. God called Abraham out of Haran, but here, Jacob is going back. The promises that we're being told that God is going to fulfill in terms of getting rid of sin in the world, they're going backwards rather than forwards. So his inheritance of land, his people, they're all back with his family. And he's running away from it rather than to it. But then in verse 11, he stops and he lies down. Now there are two things to notice there. Firstly, he's alone which is dangerous. You know, that's why people live in communities and family groups. That's why cities build walls. Because it's dangerous to be alone. You can quite easily get taken as a slave or get killed for what you have. He's very vulnerable. And secondly, the way this is introduced is very similar to what happens to his grandfather Abraham. The sun is setting, he's going to sleep, what we're expecting, a bit of a dream sequence coming on here. And then we're told in verse 12 that he has a dream. There's a ladder placed on the earth and it reaches down from heaven down to the earth and there's angels coming up and down. Now, it's, not, it's a bit unclear whether it's a ladder or a staircase. doesn't really matter. But the point is that the angels are coming and going from heaven to earth, probably doing God's work. And in verse 13, God speaks to Jacob and he says this, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob receives again those three promises. But rather than receiving from his father, he's now received them from God. The promise of offspring, the promise of land, the promise of blessing. Those same promises given to his ancestors are now resting on him. And who has it been given to? Again, he's just the most awful person running away from his family. You know, God, what on earth are you doing? You know, and, and if we have a look, these promises are unconditional. God doesn't say, if you obey me, then, then I'll do these things for you. He just says, this is what I'm going to do for you. They're unconditional. Uh, one of my sons, Boaz, and I have been reading uh, Charlie and the Choc- Chocolate Factory. And at the end of the, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, when Charlie is given 
The Chocolate Factory by Mr. Willy Wonka. Sorry if you haven't read it. I just ruined the story for you. But it's in the title anyway. But anyway. But we found out that the kids uh, who won the golden tickets were actually going through a test of who actually deserved to receive uh, the Chocolate Factory. Now, getting the factory was conditional on their character. Who deserved it the most? God says to Jacob, I've chosen you and I'm giving you everything. No conditions. No test. Here it is. What God is doing is tying his own fate and ultimately the fate of the whole world to this one man and to his family. If you're going to devise a plan to, to redeem all of humanity, you you want to pick a nice guy normally, wouldn't you? you know? But what does God do? He picks. He doesn't pick the nice guy. He, he picks the, the most horrible guy. But there's something to notice there in verse 13. And it's not so obvious at first, but how does God address himself? He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. What's missing in that statement? It's the word your. When God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, what does he say? When he sets them up, at, when, he, when he comes down and reveals himself in Sinai, he says, I am the Lord, your God. But here God just says, I am the Lord. I am Abraham's God, I am Isaac's God. And there's a question hanging over all of this. Am I your God, Jacob? Back in chapter 27, verse 20, Jacob deceives his father and Jacob asks, you know, uh, sorry, um, his, his dad asks him, how, how did you do it so quickly? And Jacob says, the Lord your God gave me success. The Lord your God. See, the Lord is not Jacob's God. He's the God of Abraham and he's the God of Isaac, but he's not here at least, the God of, the God of Jacob. And how does Jacob respond in verses 16 and 17? He's in a little bit of awe and he says, this must be the house of God. Uh, and the gate of heaven, 18 and 19, he anoints a stone that was under his head and uh, he kind of sets it up as a little monument and he renames the place Bethel, which, which means house of God. Bethel come, becomes a, quite an important place of worship for the Israelites later on when they come back into the land. Uh, but because And Jacob here renames it. Then Jacob makes up this promise in verse 20. If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey. I, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I set up, I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And when we first read that, we think, oh, Jacob's got it, hasn't he? You know, he's, he's really understood what God wants for him and he's going to take those promises and he's going to change and he's going to, he's going to live by them. You know, Jacob is in a really vulnerable state. God had to take him to that vulnerable state and you know, he's alone and running away from his family, but he's learned, he's, he's got it. But he hasn't. Look at what Jacob has done. He doesn't, he doesn't really have faith in God. He's using God to get what he wants out of God. See, how does he start the promise? How does he start his promise? He starts it with an if. He's just put a condition on it. He's just made... There's a truck there. He's just put 
God's unconditional promises is just put a condition on them. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. See, if, if you, God, watch over me, if you give me food and clothes, if you bring me back to my family, then you will be my God. And I will give you a tenth. Imagine at your wedding day, you get up and you say, you know, if you earn me enough money, if you pay the bills, if you take out the bins, if you mow the lawns, then you will be my husband or you will be my wife. That would be a very interesting wedding, but it would be a very bad marriage as well, wouldn't it? That, that's, not what we, that's not what we say. See, Jacob's words have an air of holiness about them, but we can see straight through it. He's trying to make a deal with God. If you do this, then you can be my God. But Jacob is being himself. He's doing deals. He's being greedy. So Jacob can't trust. That's his problem. He doesn't trust others because he himself is an untrustworthy person. He can't have faith in God because he is unfaithful himself. He's faithless. God has already told him unconditionally that he's going to guard him, that, that he's, going to bring, he's going to be his bodyguard. He's going to give him everything that he wants and everything that he needs. But for Jacob, that can't be true, because so he has to put a condition on it. If you do this for me, Lord, then I will serve you. So what can we learn from this, and how do we, how do we bring it together? It's not hasn't been a super happy sermon so far. Sorry about that. That's what we get in Scripture. Now, a wrong way to learn from this would be to say, uh, would be to take the promises given to Jacob and apply them straight to us. Now, how easy would it be to take verse 15 and just say, and apply it to us? I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I'm seeing a tramping track, sunrise in the distance on a poster. You, know, you can put that up on your wall. That, that, that's the wrong way to apply the Old Testament because it puts us at the centre. The first thing that we need to understand is how God's character is revealed through this. Does Jacob deserve to be given these promises? He doesn't. Does Jacob have any idea of what God is doing to and through him? He doesn't. Is Jacob's response even mildly appropriate? No way it is. But in God's grace... In his loving kindness, he's working out his plan through Jacob. Who would we, who we would consider the worst type of human being, but God has chosen the unexpected, what we might consider the most sinful person, yet he is graciously working out his plan because of his sovereignty and grace. See, in Jacob's dream, we get a glimpse of what God is doing. It's a very brief glimpse, and without extra help, we... We couldn't understand it, but it's a glimpse nonetheless. See, what is God doing in the world? Turn just quickly to, to John 1 with me. John 1, verse 51. And Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jacob was right about the vision. This was a picture of the Bethel, the place of God, as he says there, the gateway to heaven. But Jacob doesn't have all the information. 
He thought it was a physical location, and that's why he anoints the rock, and he anoints it as a special place. But Jesus in John 1, 51, is saying, I am the Bethel. I am the place of God. I am the gateway to heaven. It is me that bridges the divide between heaven and earth. Jesus is both human and divine, and it is only him that can bridge that gap, bridge that gap of sin that we have created between God and humans. So Jesus is the place of God. He's the mediator between heaven and earth. Jacob saw it in a dream, and he has a hint of what is going on. He has a hint of of how the promises are going to be fulfilled. But Jesus is saying to to the disciples there that he's with, I am the one who is anointed to be the connection between God and humans. It's not a physical location like a temple or a holy place, but it's a physical person. But it fits perfectly of what we know about Jesus. At the start of, of John, we are told that he is the one who was with God and who was God. The one who is coming into the world to dwell with us. In chapter 3 of John, he says in verse 13, he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Jacob had a dream about what God was doing. But we are privileged enough to see the reality of that fulfilled. And it isn't some rickety ladder that we can kind of fall off from. It's a living person who stands in heaven, waiting for the time where he will bring heaven to earth and to fulfill his plan for his glory. So that is the hope of the resurrection. That is the hope of the new creation. Jesus unites us with God. And our future hope is that he will bring heaven to earth. And they're pretty, some pretty bold claims, aren't they? That there is a God, that he wants to know us, that he has shown himself to us as a real person in Jesus. And those bold claims is what all of Christianity stands on. But what does that mean for us in how we live and how we go out and serve in the world? I think there are two things in particular. Firstly, I think we need to see that God in his mercy and grace took a man like Jacob, not a great guy, and he uses him to bless the world. See, God is in the business of taking vile people like that and using them for his glory. In some sense, we need to identify with Jacob. We need to understand that we, just like Jacob, have been so wrapped up in our selfishness and sin that we could never be able to trust God unless he does something spectacular to us. That we are selfish just like Jacob. And we need God to break through with his grace to us. What should have been Jacob's response to God's kind of promises to him when he reveals himself? It should have been humility. He should have just bowed down before God and and said, Lord, I am hopeless. Just like everybody else, I'm I'm undeserving of your favour. I'm vulnerable and afraid. Thank you for showing grace towards me. What does God do? Does he just give him a backhander and say, you know, stop being an idiot. Stop making conditions on, on, on me. No, he graciously deals with him. And how about us? How is it that How have we responded to God's grace in our lives? Have we been like Jacob, 
trying to make a deal with God. Lord God, if you prosper and protect me, then I will serve you. you know, maybe we're, we can be a bit more subtle than that. Not as, not as crude as Jacob is. Maybe we haven't realised that we have tried to make deals with God, but our hearts are often revealed when times of hardship come, when things that seem unfair come upon us or when we face suffering. You know, at times I've caught myself saying, Lord, you know, I do all of these things for you. Why haven't you? Why are you not looking out for me? You know, why haven't you pulled through for me? Why, why is this thing still in my life? And if you've done the same thing, then we're trying to make a deal with God. We're trying to say to God, I will only serve you if you look after me. And we all do that. But God, in his grace, disciplines us and works through us in his mercy. The second thing I think that we need to see is that God is calling us to be a part of community, a community that overflows with his grace. The way God acts towards Jacob, I think, is remarkable. He's patient. And he works for his own glory. He lets Jacob be who he is so that he can work through that. Last year, I read Rosario Butterfield's book, The Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. A very good book if you haven't read it. Uh, and it's about um, a professor at Syracuse University. She, autobiography. Uh, her field was queer and feminist studies. She's living in a lesbian relationship. Uh, and it's about her journey to faith. It's a brilliant read. But she says this about the church that she started attending. It was a Reformed Presbyterian church. It's, it says, I am grateful that God brought me to a church that was as strong on teaching as it is on compassion. I'm grateful that God brought me to a church that was as strong on teaching as it is on compassion. And I long for that in my own life. And I long for that for our churches to be like that too. That we are known to be strong in our teaching and on compassion as well. Because that is the type of God we worship. And that is the type of people that God is calling us to be. People who fiercely defend the gospel and the orthodox teaching of scripture. But compassionate enough to open our lives to the most unlikely of people. But to do that requires, that requires humility from us, an awareness of our sin, being prepared to open our lives to God in what he is doing in this world. Because that is what God is in the business of doing, is taking us and using us for his glory. Let me pray for us.